0: Let's get to White Coat Wednesday, and our medical correspondent, Dr. Mitch Shulman, is here. Hey, Dr. Mitch. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Okay, so this first story, I thought we already knew why this was the case, but apparently scientists finally know why people get more colds and flu in winter. I just thought it was because we spend so much more time indoors, so we're always going to be exposed to it. Exactly. So there are a number of factors.
1: One, we move indoors. Two, the viruses that cause the common cold, like cooler, drier temperatures. They survive longer under cooler, drier temperatures. But it turns out there's another factor. It turns out as the temperature drops, and in this case they exposed volunteers, and I use the term volunteer in quotation marks, I wonder how (laughs) how much they really volunteered to stay outdoors, uh, or in a situation where they were at 40 degrees Fahrenheit, 4.4 degrees centigrade, for just 15 minutes. And they measured the temperature inside their noses, and they found that the temperature inside their noses, the lining of their noses, dropped. They then looked at the cells that protect you against infection that hang out in your nose. And lo and behold, they found that those cells were much less able to protect you. In fact, your immunity, your immune protection fell by 50%. Uh, Those cells were much less able to manufacture the little things that run around that protect you against the viruses when they attack. So you put all these things together and it makes perfect sense why we're much more likely to become ill in the fall or in the winter. As the temperatures drop, people are exposed to each other more. But it also shows one of the advantages of mask wearing. It turns out if you wear a mask or a scarf around your face when the temperature goes down, you warm up and humidify the air that you're breathing in, therefore boosting your ability to protect yourself. So aside from protecting you against the nasties by making it more difficult for them to get in, wearing a mask may
0: also have other advantages that we had not been so aware of before. Ketamine has been thought to be a treatment for depression, but a new double-blind study finds perhaps not. Yeah, and that's, we're always looking for new ways of
1: dealing with major depressive disorder because we know it affects people so dramatically, and we know not everybody responds to our traditional medications and traditional uh, therapies for it. And there were some thought that maybe ketamine in very small doses done under supervision might help some of these people. The problem with using ketamine in a trial is it's fairly obvious if you've given someone ketamine. I mean, there are effects of the medication, we'll just leave it that way, that are very difficult to mask. So what they did was they took 40 depressive people, Half of them, before they went under general anesthesia for another reason, they were scheduled to have surgery that required uh, putting them to sleep for the surgery. Half of them got ketamine before they went under, half of them got a placebo salt water solution injection instead. And this way they figured if you're going under general anesthesia, you're asleep, you won't feel the buzz from the ketamine, you won't know that you've gotten it or not. And lo and behold, when these people woke up and they followed them for the next period of time, they found that there was no real difference in terms of how they were doing with their depression. So giving ketamine in this circumstance, you have to understand this is a very unusual way of giving the medication, didn't seem to help them with their depression. Does that mean it doesn't work for depression? Well, it certainly would
0: tend to make you think that, but this isn't the type of study that would give you a definitive answer one way or another yet. One in three Canadians don't know the difference between a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. I guess I'm one of them. Yeah, and it's really
1: important. See, look, a heart attack happens when the blood supply to the muscle that is your heart gets interrupted for some reason. Cholesterol builds up, uh, whatever. And therefore, the heart is working, but it's not getting enough food and oxygen. It screams out in pain. Typically, you for a guy, you'll get chest pain, but in, in a guy or a girl or an older person or a diabetic, you may just feel suddenly very faint or break out into a cold sweat or faint. Those are all equivalent signs of a heart attack. A heart attack is blockage of the blood supply to part of the heart, and those cells can die and so can you. But if the heart stops, That's a cardiac arrest, and that can happen for a number of reasons. It can either stop, literally just stop, no beating of the heart whatsoever, or it can quiver. Instead of beating in a coordinated way, the heart muscle quivers. We call that fibrillation. Ventricular fibrillation, the ventricle being the main pumping chamber of the heart, means that the heart isn't pumping blood. If it's not pumping blood either because it's stopped or because of VFib, uh, you stop. You drop to the ground within seconds. And if someone doesn't get to you, immediately start chest compressions, get a defibrillator, an automatic external defibrillator there. In other words, if they don't call 911 at once, for every minute you're down, your chances of being brought back diminish by about 10%. So within about seven or eight minutes, you have very little chance of being revived, which is why it's so important to know the difference, which is why it's so important if someone collapses, the people around them know how to do chest compressions, and they know to call 911, which is why knowing the difference between a heart attack and
0: a stroke is so important, a heart attack rather, and a cardiac arrest is so important. Okay, one last story, and we've learned so much more about the gut over the last few years, and as a matter of fact, you and I have talked on this segment about long COVID and the possibility that the digestive system might be involved. So could some diets actually help manage long COVID?
1: Certainly they can't help.
0: Uh Um, They're suggesting that if you use an anti-inflammatory diet, a diet like the
1: Mediterranean diet, high in fruits and vegetables and nuts and fish, low in red meat and uh, unhealthy oils and healthy quantities of salt, If you take that type of diet, you may reduce the amount of inflammation, and if inflammation plays a role in long COVID, if it helps to regulate your immune system, and that plays a role in long COVID, maybe your diet can help. Now there's certainly no way a diet we think can cure long COVID, it just doesn't seem to do that yet. But if these are the two players at work, either inflammation or harm, uh, harm to your immune system, your immune system just isn't working properly, certainly a healthy diet and specifically, something like the Mediterranean diet, which is healthy for you in other ways, right? Reduces your risk of heart attack, stroke, and all those other things, um, is a way to go. And you might want to consider it. It's healthy anyway. So what's what's the, what's what's the harm? Well, and it's in good, a good healthy diet. I mean, it's That's it's right. also you can make
0: gourmet Mediterranean food and enjoy yourself. It's not it's like delicious. you're eating, you know, matzah. Yes, it's not like you're suffering. And sorry, I don't want to insult matzah. I like matzah, but it's a little plain. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Have a great day. (laughs) That's Dr. Mitch Shulman, our medical correspondent.